Our scripture passage this morning is Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then, or these twelve, Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopard, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you... Let's pray together. Father, we just glory in our Redeemer. It is astounding. I pray that we would just take a moment and just reflect. As Brent prayed how much we have to be grateful for, and especially the forgiveness of sins. We all sit here, and the only thing we deserve this morning is judgment and condemnation because of our sin, because of things we've done even this week, things we've said, things we've thought, things we should have done and did not do. And you're holy, but you're rich in mercy, and you do not give us what we deserve. But instead, we sit here, if we've trusted Christ with our names written in the book of life, and there is therefore now no condemnation. And the worst thing that could happen to us, death, is actually the best thing that can happen to us because it means we get to go be with you, which is far better. Oh, God, would you help us to believe it this morning? We believe Help our unbelief. What other glory consumes like fire? What other power can raise the dead? What other name remains undefeated? Who else could rescue us from our failings? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites us to call him father? Only a holy God. You do. We're undeserving and we're thankful. For those of us who aren't thankful as we should be, would you produce gratitude in our hearts by the Holy Spirit? And Father, I pray for those that are apathetic among us, those who know the Lord but just don't care enough. Maybe they're caught up in sin. Maybe they're caught up in some distraction. Would you revive us? Would you renew us? Would you increase our passion for Jesus Christ and him crucified? 
to make us like the Apostle Paul and know nothing but him, Christ crucified, that we would glory in nothing save the crucifixion of our Lord. Give us a renewed dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Make us a people of joyful prayer. As we turn to your word, would you do this? Would you shape us to be more like Jesus? We pray it in his strong name, your son, our king. Amen. What are we here for? It's a big question. We probably don't ask it enough. Another way of asking it is, why did Jesus leave us here? He could have wrapped it all up in his first coming, but he didn't. He won the victory. He inaugurated the kingdom, but he did not consummate the kingdom. And so here we are waiting until the second coming. I think we could answer that question correctly from the scriptures in a few ways. One of my favorites from the catechism, what are we here for? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's hard to improve upon that. But surely one of the other main purposes, how we do that, how we glorify the Lord is by being his witness. This time between the two comings is the era of witness. So let's look together in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 9. If you're using one of our Bibles there in the seat, it's page 764. If you're a guest here among us, we just, we're just walking through the gospel of Matthew Verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph. And let's see what Jesus has to say. Let's consider two things. Number one, a prayer for workers and then the sending of workers. So first, a prayer for workers. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is continuing his ministry. And remember how we ended last week, in case you don't remember, you've slept a few times since then. Look at the previous verse, chapter 9, verse 34. But the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Jewish leaders said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. So Jesus is doing work and they accuse him of being animated, empowered by Satan himself. There's going to be opposition. Just shake them haters off. Keep being faithful. That's what we see Jesus doing here. Continuing his ministry, going along and he sees the crowds. And notice his response. He has compassion on them. This word here, it's a real visceral word. It's really a word that means the guts. You can almost hear it in the word. The word is splanknizomai. Sounds like from the gut, because that's what it means. Jesus' heart goes out. He sees the crowds and he has this gut response. He was broken for them. That's what the word compassion means from Latin cum, with, passio, to suffer. He suffers with them. He doesn't look out at the crowds and judge them or condemn them, but he feels sorry for them. He sees sinners and strugglers and sufferers and our Lord is drawn in, not repelled. He suffers with us. I've been working on a a mantra for Southside. There's a church in Nashville that has a mantra that I like, but I want to make it a little more kid-friendly. Let me know what you think. We've seen it a chapter after chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Number one, we are all a mess. Nashville says, I'm a complete idiot, but we don't use that word in my home, so that can't be our mantra. (laughs) 
we're all a mess. Jesus provides all we need, and anyone can get in on this. We see it. Jesus enters the crowds, sinners and sufferers, and his heart goes out. Why? Well, because here they are. They're all a mess. He says they're harassed and helpless. They're distressed and dejected. They were like sheep without a shepherd, Jesus says. Of course, you know, sheep, they're silly animals. They're very short-term thinkers. They're bent on their own death. Vulnerable. They're wanderers. Without a shepherd, they're in danger. They need protection. They need care. They need guidance. They need provision. They need nourishment. And Jesus is the good shepherd, and so he cares for lost sheep. John chapter 10, such a beautiful passage speaking about this aspect of our Lord's character. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. That phrase actually comes from the Old Testament. A couple different places. One time Moses uses it when he's speaking of Joshua taking over, taking his place. And he says, may the Lord appoint a man, a leader, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep without a shepherd from the book of Numbers. The people of Israel, they needed a righteous leader. The shepherds of Israel had become unfaithful. They had bad shepherds. And so the Lord, again and again, he promises to send a faithful shepherd. Let me turn, in fact, turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. If you just open your Bible kind of in the middle and go to the right, you'll see it. It's a big book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel chapter 34. I want you to read this passage with me. I love this chapter, this promise that God's going to care for his people. A lot of images that the Lord could have given us on how he relates to us, and there are, there are a lot of them. I just love the fact that he comes in and he shepherds us, wandering sheep. So things are bad in Israel, and notice what God promises. I want to read a decent amount here. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, oh, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely, because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, 
since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I, Yahweh says, I will seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own lands. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy, I will feed them injustice. Now, I wonder if the Lord wants us to be clear on who's going to come and shepherd. It's Yahweh himself. How many times do we read I there? God's going to come and shepherd his people. But look down a little bit at verse 22. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant, David. This is the book of Ezekiel. David has been long dead by the time this is written. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So who will shepherd God's people? Will it be God himself, Yahweh? Or will it be his servant David? Yes. Because what Matthew's been trying to tell us the whole time is Jesus Christ is son of David, son of God. Jesus is God himself coming to shepherd his people. The good shepherd. Look at verse 37 of Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus here uses farming imagery. The harvest is plentiful. There is oh, so much work to do, an abundance of work. Jesus has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus, as we saw earlier in John chapter 10, the good shepherd, he has other sheep. He must bring them in also. They will hear his voice. But friends, how do they hear his voice? Through our voice. God making his appeal through us. 
be reconciled to God. But there's a problem. There's an abundant harvest, but there's a lacking workforce. The laborers are few. We don't have enough people on mission. We need more laborers. It's interesting that he calls us laborers, isn't it? It's because evangelism and mission, that's hard work. If you've been at it, it's hard. It's hard work, but it's work that matters. It's work that will matter for all eternity. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It will, it's work that will bear fruit for all eternity. So what should we do then? Well, first we pray. This word here for pray, it's one word, but it's translated here earnestly pray because it can be translated ask or even beg. Beg the Lord of the harvest that he would send out laborers. Just this week, marinating in this passage, I've been convicted by this. I want to make it a regular part of my prayer life. We should always be asking God to raise up workers. He commands us right here. I wonder how much of this is part of your regular prayer life. God, would you raise up workers? Would you raise up laborers? Would you raise up missionaries? Would you raise up ministers? Would you raise up evangelists? And by evangelists, I mean you. Ordinary men and women living out ordinary lives with gospel intentionality. If you're a member here at Southside, I hope you're praying through our membership directory regularly. And a great way to fulfill the passage here, fulfill this command from Jesus, is to pray as you pray for our members. Pray that they would have opportunities to share the gospel daily. Jesus command us to here, it's the kind of prayer God loves to answer. If you're in a D group, which is one of our main engines for discipleship here at Southside, groups of three to five that meet together, three to five men or three to five women that re- meet together regularly to help each other grow. We've got these D group cards at our entrances if you don't have one, and we've got a few spaces there on the bottom so that you can regularly be asking, hey, who are you sharing the gospel with? Who do you want to share the gospel with? And then pray for them by name. Asking God for it and asking God for more workers. So we ask God that, but we also act. We work, we labor for the glory of God, which leads us to the second point, the sending of workers. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse one. He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Notice Jesus prays and he encourages prayer, but then he does something about it. The very men he urges to pray that the Lord might raise up labors are thrust out into the forefront of those labors. Jesus has such authority, he can even delegate it to his disciples. Notice the similar wording of chapter 10, verse one, and then look over at chapter nine, verse 35. What Jesus does and then what his disciples are to do. 9.35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. That's what Jesus does. But then in chapter 10, verse 1, he delegates the very same role to his apostles. 10.1, he called to him as 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus delegates to his disciples. Their mission is simply a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. And Matthew wants us to see that. That's why he just repeats the verse. But so does Luke. Did you know Luke wrote two volumes in our Bibles? Sometimes we think, who wrote the most part of our New Testament? We automatically think Paul, because he wrote 13 letters. It was actually Luke, because he wrote Luke and Acts. So volume one is Luke, and volume two is 
Acts and Luke is all about the ministry of Jesus. But notice how he starts volume two. Notice the way he words the volume, the beginning of volume two in Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. The gospel of Luke is all about what Jesus began to do. Jesus ascends. The, God, the, the acts of the apostles are all about what Jesus continues to do through the apostles. Our mission is just a continuation of his mission. He delegates us the authority. It's how this gospel ends, right? Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, you go and make disciples. The great commission is preceded by the great declaration. Jesus builds his church through us. It's one of the most greatest, greatest privileges we have. Jesus promises, I will build my church. And then he delegates it to us to do that as we build up one another. Starts here with his 12 disciples. And that's just so normal to us. Well, when Jesus had 12 disciples, you ever stop and ask why 12? Could have been five, could have been 40. 12 is symbolically important. Jesus chose 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes of Israel. That's why when Judas is betrayed, the number went down to 11. He's quickly replaced to get back to 12 because Jesus is regathering and reconstituting Israel around himself. To be a part of the people of God, one must be connected to Jesus. That's why John starts his gospel this way. Jesus came to his own people. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's no longer ethnicity, blood that matters. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew's been telling us this all along. I know it's been a little while, but flip back to chapter 2. Matthew's been showing us that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is embodying Israel in himself. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Remember the flight to Egypt. And he rose and he took the child Jesus and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, remember back in, maybe you don't remember, originally Hosea, it's talking about Israel being leaving Egypt, but it actually also pointed forward to the true Israel, Jesus, who's going to perform a new exodus. We've seen a lot of this in Matthew, maybe you remember chapter one, the genealogy, the Greek word is Genesis. Then we have here an exodus. Then we have, look at chapter three, verse 13 of Matthew, a parting of the waters, and it's the Jordan River. Then we have a temptation in the wilderness, Numbers. Jesus is tempted, but unlike Israel, he's faithful and he quotes Deuteronomy three different times from the law. Then we have in chapter five, Jesus goes up on the mount like a new Moses giving a new law in chapter five to seven. All along, Matthew's trying to tell us that the story of Jesus is the fulfillment, the completion of the story of Israel. So he picks 12 to launch his new covenant community. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 2. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, 
Simon, who's called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Peter, of course, was the clear leader. He always heads up the list of the apostles. His brother Andrew was one, especially in the Gospel of John, he's the one that's quick to recognize Jesus and he's always bringing people to Jesus. I think his little headstone epithet would be, he brought them to Jesus. What a way to be known and remembered. James and John, they were also fishermen. You remember they had a really proud mama. Look over at Matthew chapter 20. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we're able. <laughs> we got to love proud mamas and zeal for the Lord. They were called the sons of thunder. They were pretty intense guys. One time, a Samaritan village rejected Jesus and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and burn them up? Overly confident zeal. Zeal, nonetheless, John wrote five New Testament books. Philip, for whatever it's worth, means lover of horses. Bartholomew, it's an American, uh, Aramaic name. It means sons of Tolmai. And we have poor Thomas. Thomas forever dubbed as Doubting Thomas. Even though if you read the whole Gospels, his faith was quite strong. Whenever I get to glory, I'm just going to hug that brother. I'm like, man, I had doubts too, especially at the beginning. It's good. We're here. We made it. And then notice Matthew, who wrote Matthew, right? He doesn't just say Matthew. He says Matthew, the tax collector. He owns his past. And remember, the Jews absolutely hated tax collectors, like a cuss word. They were considered the scum of the earth. A Jew would only become a tax collector if they were driven by greed, if they loved money and power more than their own Jewish heritage. Rabbis, believe it or not, would say it's okay to lie to tax collectors. It's one of the Ten Commandments. They said, well, if it's a tax collector, you're fine. Break the Ninth Commandment, you're good. They were bunched in with the prostitutes, dealing with Gentiles, working on the Sabbath, perpetuating injustice. James was the first apostle to be martyred. Herod killed him with a sword, we learn in Acts. Thaddeus is also called Jude, probably wrote Jude. Simon the Zealot was a part of a party of Jewish nationalists. Simon would have been the guy rocking the AR-15 over his shoulder in the red hat, made Jerusalem great again. <laughs> then there was Judas who betrayed him. Now it's worth pointing out two things about this group. First, notice Jesus draws from diverse backgrounds and even opposing backgrounds into one unified group for him. On mission for him. Fishermen, blue collar, white collar, tax collectors, and a zealous revolutionary. And these two are especially at odds. Think about it. Zealots, they were a re revolutionary movement which opposed submission to Rome even with violence. Then we have a tax collector who 
gave up his Jewish nationalism in order to work for Rome. Both called by Christ to forsake previous allegiances and serve him. You really couldn't have more opposite ideological parties. Be like a Ku Klux Klan member with a Black Panther. Total opposite ends, both called by Christ and unified around him. And friends, only the gospel can do that kind of thing. Let me read from Ephesians 3 where it speaks of through the cross, uniting people from diverse backgrounds in the church. Ephesians 3, 9. Paul's ministry is to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, this uniting of all kinds of people, zealots and tax collectors, and when they've come together and are unified on Christ, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. When people that should be enemies, naturally speaking, come together in our mission for the Lord, it shows God's wisdom, it shows God's power, displays his glory. So that's the first thing, the diverse backgrounds. But the second thing about this group is they are some utterly ordinary people, unqualified people. The cliche is cliche, but it's true. God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And so friend, don't ever doubt that you, even you can be used mightily by the Lord. I love how Michael Green describes the early Christians. He says, the gospel spread most of all by the enthusiastic witness of the nameless people who loved Jesus and could not keep quiet about him. It was a people movement, this early Christianity. That's why it succeeded. It did not depend on big names, but on little people who had a big God and were not afraid to put him to the test as they went out in his name. And if that is not a challenge and a rebuke to the modern church, I do not know what is. Then Jesus explains where to go, the nature of the mission and the provision. So where to go, look at chapter 10, verse five. These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This mission would be limited until the death and resurrection of Jesus, after which the gospel goes to all nations. But for now, it's restricted to Jewish Galilee. And for now, avoid the Samaritans. We'll see already in the very first chapter of Acts that this gospel goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Then he teaches the nature of the mission. Look at the next verse there in verse seven. And here's what you do. Proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Proclaim the kingdom. Again, that's the main message, John. Matthew chapter three, verse two, John the Baptist, what does he say? He repents, turn from yourself and turn to Christ for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Chapter four, verse 17, Jesus begins preaching. Very same thing, repent, turn from yourself, turn to Christ because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The disciples are to proclaim the same message, fidelity not creativity is the hallmark of disciples and teachers. Fidelity, not creativity, is the hallmark of disciples and teachers. And then Jesus teaches how they are to go. Look at verse 9. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, 
or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. In whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Don't worry about possessions for this trip. This is going to be a quicker preaching trip. He would have different instructions later. In fact, in Luke, we see this after the resurrection, or sorry, towards the end of the gospel, he says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And as they go, people were to support them. Ministers should be supported. Labor deserves his food. Interesting side note, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes this right here and calls it scripture. So from the very beginning, the gospel of Matthew was already considered holy scripture by the apostle Paul. But for today, missions, we need to make sensible provisions for the work so that it will be sustainable. And he tells them, as you go out, look for worthy people. Look for people who will be hospitable. And if a house will not welcome you, withhold peace. Shake off the dust. Move on. That's what he said, if you remember, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. Don't give pearls to swine. There is a time to move on. If there's remaining hostility, we see the apostles doing that in the book of Acts when they're opposed. Life is too short and the need is too great. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. See it again a little bit later in chapter 18, the book of Acts. The apostles following the orders of their Lord, 18 verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Something we need to realize as Christians, and if you're not a Christian here, you need to realize that to reject the messengers of Jesus is to reject Jesus. And he says here, it will lead to judgment. I wonder if you're here and you know the Lord living in Abilene, I will bet Jesus has sent messengers to you. Whether it's a friend or a coworker, family member, I bet you've heard. And don't reject them because as you reject them, it's a rejection of the King of Kings and it ultimately leads to judgment, he says. And the only way to escape that judgment is through trusting in Christ. Repent and believe, turn from yourself and turn to Christ. 
If you have questions about becoming a Christian, there's nothing we prefer to talk about. Let us know. Well, what will we take then from this passage? Let's ask ourselves three questions to conclude. First, and I think for our purposes, probably most important, where we started in this passage, do you share the heart of Christ for lost people? We're surrounded by lostness and really we're surrounded in an anti-God culture. Will Hampton, one of our members is here uh, today. He's out at Rice and he was just telling me story after story. It's really, it's really bleak. But what should our response be? It should be first and foremost to enter in and suffer with them. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They're distressed and dejected. They're lost. And we would be right there if it weren't for the grace of God. Jesus sees people and he doesn't stand over them and point his finger. Instead, he's burdened. He has compassion. He suffers with them. And so are you broken for the lost? Are you burdened for those who do not know the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5, one of my favorite mission passages says we're compelled by the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us in the context of evangelism to go to be ambassadors. And it says there in, I think, verse 16, from now on, it says the new creation has come, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. The NIV kind of paraphrases that for us. We don't look at anyone in a worldly way anymore. And so when we see people, we see them as people who will live for eternity, either with Christ or without Christ. The Apostle Paul in Romans 9 begins, he says, I could wish myself accursed. It's incredible. I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ if my brothers would be saved. Second question, do you pray? Do you pray for the work and do you pray for workers? Maybe the best application from this text is a commitment to pray daily for the work of the gospel to bear fruit and for God to raise up more workers. Let's pray for God to send more missionaries. From here, Jesus commands us to pray earnestly for more workers. Also, we begin now, we meet on the first Sunday night uh, of the month at Southside Now, December, we already mentioned the fifth, not the fourth. That's my bad, Taylor. I put that in there. Um, we're gonna eat together. And in January 9th, we'll have our, uh, another members meeting. But after that, February moving on, first Sunday night of the month, we're gonna come together. We're gonna hear some missionary announcement. Might be a little bit of teaching, uh, other things. But part of what we're gonna do there, 20 minutes or so, is we're just gonna pray together corporately. We've only done it one or two times. It's been so sweet. And one of the main things we're gonna pray for is workers and gospel work. So if you're a member or not, come to those services, prioritize those, go ahead and mark them off. First Sunday of the month, plan to be here as we fulfill what the Lord tells us to do here. Third question, are you on mission yourself? Are you at work? Are you laboring? Are you an ambassador? Do you seek to share the gospel? Listen, we all stink at it. We know that. Let's just own that. But we're all called to it. So let's do it. We're all called to make disciples. Every disciple, right? The Great Commission is all authority has been given to Jesus. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. Notice that. What's at least one of the things Jesus commanded? Make disciples. Disciples are those who make disciples who teach others to make disciples. 
It's really the case that if you're not making disciples, if you're not seeking to help someone know the Lord, you're not a disciple of Jesus. Disciples make disciples. That's why in chapter 419 of Matthew, what did he say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Part of following Jesus is being a fisher of men. Mission is why Jesus left us here. It's the era of witness. We are committed to missional living in all we do. And because we have so many young families here, let me just speak a word to moms, especially of little ones. Always keep in mind, you sometimes these sermons and these types of emphasis can be guilt, guilt rid. You know, I wish I could do more. I've just got my hands full. Listen, your family is your nearest mission field. Don't take that for granted. We had the, we had the new members of last, last crew over on Friday night. And we just wanted to hear testimonies. And I think every one of them, I may be missing one. I think every one of those new members was saved because they were raised in a Christian home. In fact, if you were saved as a Christian, if you were saved before the age of 18, would you raise your hand? Incredible. One of the main means God uses to build his church is faithful parents. It's tiresome work, but stay faithful. Luther said, his family is my little parish. So as we close, I want to take just a few moments. We'll just say, just pray silently where you are for just a few, a couple minutes. And here's what I want you to pray. Pray specifically that God would raise up workers and missionaries from among us. He asks us to, he's happy to answer it. So let's just spend a moment of prayer before we continue in worship.